Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning. Let me invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we are continuing the series on the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we are finishing up chapter 5 this morning um, in Jesus' teaching um, on the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, we are in a series called Conversion, and we are looking at how God makes hearts that are alive in Jesus. Um, Jesus came to fulfill what the Old Testament uh, foresaw. Um, and Jesus is teaching us in this series as we walk through these sections that Christian righteousness is greater than religious righteousness because it's deeper, uh, that it has a work in the heart, that it um, is not just of outward conduct, but it is an attitude of the whole life and an attitude of the heart. And so Jesus then, in this passage and throughout this uh, this sermon goes on to show us how complete life change comes through a whole life that's surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. That the character, the form, and the function of our everyday life changes. And this is conversion. Specifically, though, Jesus is exposing uh, the common interpretation and erroneous understanding uh, that was taught during his day by the religious leaders. Uh, Jesus is not teaching us something new, but he is pointing back to what originally was meant to be. Uh, and he is exposing and exposing the religious leaders. He's exposing us uh, even to the multiple ways that self-righteousness can manifest itself even in how we understand the Old Testament. You see, we are capable, just like the religious leaders, of missing the original intent of what the Old Testament meant, and even warping it after self-righteousness. And so ultimately, Jesus is calling us to renounce self-righteousness, um, a righteousness that's rooted in us, and to trust in a greater righteousness that he came to fulfill by faith and repentance. And so Jesus doesn't come again to bring a new righteousness, but he's come to point us to the true righteousness that was originally intended, that he fulfills um, in our lives. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. I invite you to turn to God's word and read along with me in verses 43 to 48. This is what the word of the Lord says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, 
you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask you to illumine our hearts this morning by your word. We pray, God, that you might uh, speak to the divisions of our soul, the divisions in us with precision, that you might bring healing, conviction, and grace. So God, would you be magnified in our time? Uh, Would you help us to even set aside ourselves that we might hear from you? And that we might be attentive to all that you desire to lead in and through us. And so we ask this morning that would you help us to see wondrous things in your word, to see you in all of your glory, that we might respond in faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the main point of this message this morning and the main point of what Jesus is getting at here in this passage of Scripture um, is that conversion produces a dignifying love towards all people out of a tethered trust in Jesus and his extraordinary love. That conversion actually produces a dignifying love towards all people out of a tethered trust in Jesus and his extraordinary love. Simply this, Christian righteousness actively and impartially loves others even natural enemies, because it's rooted in divine love. And so again, Jesus is not quoting the Old Testament to us, but he is quoting to us what was often taught uh, in light of the Old Testament to us. He does not, as he does elsewhere, say it is written, but he says, you have heard it said. So it's important for us to notice that Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament. He is not giving us new instruction in the Old Testament. Jesus is countering the wrong interpretation of the Old Testament that was given by the religious teachers of his day. And this is what the religious leaders had taught, that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Specifically, this was a twisting of Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 through 19. This may sound familiar to you, but this is what Leviticus 19 says. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus is full of laws concerning the dignity of life. So some of this should sound familiar to us. Jesus referenced it many times, this particular passage especially. Um, But Leviticus, if you spend some time reading Leviticus, it can kind of feel a little bit like those... um, sofa cushion tags, like uh, a little, like, you know, it probably had a purpose at some point, but it just seems really arbitrary um, to you in this day. Um, But Leviticus is full uh, of grace to us, Uh, although it might not apply directly in the same ways it did in those days. But if you study Leviticus, what you will notice is that Leviticus stresses this, that we are to respond to God's creation in light of who he is. We're to respond to other human beings, animals, 
even the stewardship of all that he has created in light of God's holiness. Leviticus specifically stresses this, that God is not common and that nothing he made is to be treated commonly, but always with dignity. And so the law instructed them in this. They were to protect and uphold the dignity of life. They were to prefer mercy over vengeance. They were to treat nothing commonly in their stewardship. And so the purpose of the law was to show God's people that they were to protect and uphold the dignity of life at all costs in honor of their Lord. They were to prefer mercy over vengeance in trusting him. And so the standard of their love for the dignity of human, human life specifically was to be the love that they had for themselves. The hinge point, though, in the departure that the religious leaders had was on this term, neighbor. This is where their departure from the intent of the law stood and where their teaching went awry. This is, after all, why the scribe, if you read recorded in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, before the familiar passage of the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, we see the scribe asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, surely your neighbor can't be your enemy. Love for neighbor they had defined as that of a close association with someone of the same nation, tribe, or affinity group. They had limited, you see, who it was to be known as their neighbor. They had assumed this passage in the law only referenced the relationship they had with fellow countrymen. And so they were permitted and even encouraged in some aspects by religious leaders we see here that Jesus is confronting to not only not, uh, to not love those who were not of their people. So they had allowed then this loophole for racism and a spirit even of revenge in their life. And so this permission was given for a passive disregard towards people unlike them or seen as enemies. Surprising, though, they overlooked the end of this chapter in verse 34 of Leviticus 19. They had overlooked the, the instruction that they found there where, where the Lord says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so the Lord tethers these two aspects together. You should love the Lord your, uh, you should love uh, rather uh, your brothers, your neighbors as yourself. And then if there's any question who your neighbor is, you're to love those who are unlike you, strangers, and love them as yourself. And so the term there, stranger and sojourner, was someone living among a people who were not blood-related, but they were dependent upon the hospitality of those that they lived among. And so the principle of all this is this. God had loved Israel when they were strangers in Egypt, and they were to love those who were strangers in their own land. 
And so they didn't need to ask, who's my neighbor? The law had made that clear. The law said it was everyone that they might find in their midst. That's who they were called to love. In fact, nowhere did the law teach a hatred for one's enemies. Passages, as a matter of fact, like this, Leviticus 19, and Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 through 5, actually teach us just the opposite. When you were to come across an enemy in need, how you were to respond. If you were to come across an enemy's property, how you were to respond in those times as well. And so Jesus shows them and he shows us that righteousness not only excludes a passive disregard for another, but mandates even an active love towards those most unlike us and even those opposed to us. So I want to give you from this passage what I believe Jesus is aiming at for us, three distinctives of Christian love. Three distinctives of Christian love. Having looked at the Old Testament background in what uh, he's aiming for, I'm going to give you three distinctives of Christian love. The first one is this. Our enemy is our neighbor. Our enemy is our neighbor. That's kind of a scary, sobering thought, right? That you, you live amongst enemies, your neighbors are your enemies. But Jesus is going to show us that perfect righteousness actually loves enemies as neighbors. And just as the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus would tell us, he shows that what makes someone our neighbor isn't class, it isn't race, it isn't common affinity, common beliefs. The only commonality there is that it is simply another human being with a need that we have the opportunity to meet. So who are my enemies? Now having defined who my neighbor is, who then is my enemy? Jesus in this passage tells us this. It could be those who curse us, those who hate us, those who exploit us. Or, specifically, it could be an enemy that persecutes. And a persecution, persecution in that day was someone who sought to drive out. That's what the word means. To drive out someone and what they stood for. So these enemies may persecute, do all that they can in order to drive out those who upheld righteousness. But here's the thing. Conversion changes our love of neighbor to affect every person we encounter. Even our enemies are included as our neighbors. Again, I want to be very clear, as Pastor Lane noted last week, and I'll note again, Jesus is not teaching some sort of Christian pacifism in this passage. He's not teaching that, okay? What Jesus is addressing in this passage is our default of our heart and our preference to self-vindication. He is addressing our preferences to self-vindicate. Let me go on and explain here. Just like in the prior passage, Jesus speaks of retaliation as being our natural default. Those things, as they pattern themselves in our life, along with the natural pattern and preference to self-vindication, we become vindictive people. Have you ever met a vindictive person or seen this spirit kind of arise in you? A vindictive person is simply a person that has a strong or unreasoning desire for revenge. 
It's a miserable and exhausting bitterness that sets itself up in ways that always seems to find a wrong someone has done or a score that needs to be settled. And if you look at the life of a vindictive person who has a spirit of vindictiveness set in their life, you will find burned bridges that abound. Because after a while, you train your heart in this bitterness, right? And so Jesus is addressing our defensiveness, the posture of defensiveness in our life, our vengeance, our favoritism, and our retaliatory impulses that often are our reflexes naturally. And he's showing us that rather than having these impulses, conversion gives us another impulse that shapes our lives, and that is the impulse to mercy. The impulse to mercy. So love for your neighbor as yourself moves to love your enemy as yourself. That's hard, right? It's, it's hard enough to, to love the neighbor that you're okay with. It's not so annoying, right? That, that, that's all right. It's really hard to love an enemy, right? So how do, in the, how do we do this? And Jesus is clear here that the only way we can do this is through the changing power of the gospel at work in us. That only converted hearts changed by the power of grace can do this. Where grace is at work in a person's life who has had faith and converted their whole life under the lordship of Jesus. And so I want you to notice the second thing, distinctive of Christian love here that Jesus noticed is that it begins with the gospel. And that means that we know this, that we were enemies of God, but Christ became our neighbor. So who were God's enemies? God's enemies in the scriptures are those who are wicked, those who are idolatrous, those in which his wrath is set against. But ironically, they're also the people in which God's love is also set upon. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, that our sin, in our sin and in our, in our death and sin, when we are outside of God's grace by faith, we are dead in our sins by nature, and we are, as Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath, that wrath is set against us from our onset. But God, being rich in mercy, loves us even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins that he sent Jesus that we might have life in him, that we might be raised to newness of life. And so God is impartial. He shows love towards those that despise him. And if we are in sin, which that's every one of us outside of faith in Jesus, we're all there. We were all there. And so Jesus goes on to illustrate this further to show how God sends rain on the just and the unjust that he makes the sun shine on the evil as well as the good. But more than that, Jesus came as our good Samaritan-like neighbor to bind up our wounds and to carry us to his grace. And so through the gospel, God makes natural enemy neighbors his sons, having won them by his love. That's what the love of God does to us. And that's what verse 45 is getting at. That we who are natural enemies of God are made sons 
through the righteousness of Jesus. And then by faith we receive that. Listen to how the Apostle John tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, being Jesus, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He's a stranger. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was the neighbor that was rejected. And then Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we read it a moment ago. While we were enemies... God has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, Jesus. That Jesus came to us when we were enemies in our sin, when we were children of wrath by our nature. He came to us even when we rejected him, that we might know the righteousness of God, that we might know the love of God. And so God dignifies his enemies in his love, in the reconciling love of God through Jesus Christ. And so our conversion then in receiving that love by faith makes enemies into sons that live under the lordship of Jesus. And so just as God responds to his natural enemies, so too must we respond to enemies. We seek reconciliation now as our default as long as it is up to us. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, as long as it is up to you, seek to be at peace with all men. And when there are opponents to righteousness as the enemies of God that we encounter, as Jesus is laying forth here, how should we respond? We love them and we yearn for their salvation, just as in the case of our own nature prior as being enemies. We yearn for their salvation, we ask for it, or that when they refuse and continue in their wickedness and injustice, we ask that God would intervene, and God, that they might be judged, and that wickedness and injustice would be done away with. And so the point here then, in this section of chapter 5, just as the section prior to that, is this that conversion leads us to prefer mercy over taking justice in our own hands. Although it is not to the exclusion of justice, God prefers mercy. How do we know this? If you're a Christian, because you're a Christian. You know the love and mercy and grace of God in your life because God preferred to show you mercy than he than wrath. And so here's what we learned from this that human love can reciprocate. It can give good towards good others. That anyone can do this. Any human being can do this. Even those that are the Gentiles, those that are pagans who don't know God. Human love can give good to good, but divine love alone dignifies enemies. It is divine love alone that drives out evil. It is the only good that drives out evil. And so God's love dignifies even its enemies. And that is our story, friends. If we are in Christ, that's our story. God has dignified you and I through his love, and we receive that by faith. And so we, while we were enemies of God, Christ became our neighbor that we might become sons. And then the third distinctive of Christian love is this, is that it has extraordinary love as its standard. Extraordinary love as its standard. Look at verse 47 specifically. 
Conversion makes us respond with more than the world offers. If you see that in your, in your translation in verse 47, make sure you underline that word more. It's important. It's important because here's what Jesus is getting at. Conversion makes us live on a higher plane than the rest of the world. We respond to our neighbors with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so Jesus asks his audience, and he asks us today, what are you doing more than the rest of the world? Do you offer up good only to those who are good to you? Every human being can do that. Even the pagans do that. People who are far from God do that. But divine love is greater and a true righteousness that dignifies and is merciful towards those who even mean for us evil. And so the righteous love of God is the measure of love towards our neighbor. In this, we imitate our Father as his beloved sons, verse 45 tells us. So God shows us love even towards his enemies. And when we love as he loves, we prove to imitate him and prove to be his children, his sons, his heirs of the kingdom. And so as one theologian, um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor and theologian, notes, we are not called to resemble non-Christians. Our calling is to extraordinarily exceed them in virtue. What made the Christian different from other men is the distinctive quality of the unusual. That's that word more, okay? The peculiar, the more. Notice, Christian, we're peculiar in this world, okay? It's okay. Be weird, right? You're peculiar. God made you that way in his love, okay? Don't be weird just for weirdness sake, though, okay? All right? But that's the defining hallmark of the Christian life. For Jesus, the hallmark of the Christian life is the extraordinary. And so it's important, though, for us to note that in verse 48, Jesus, when he speaks of perfection, Jesus is not mentioning here that in our imitation of our Father's love, we must be faultless or sinless, okay? That's important for a recovering perfectionist like me, okay? There's certainly nothing wrong with trying to not sin. You should be doing that, right? You now have, you're not under law, you're under grace, okay? Paul tells us. So you should be doing that. But to see this as faultlessness in the Christian life is not what Jesus is showing us. The word here conveys maturity, adulthood, as in a completed growth in our lives. And so it's the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, actually, which is conversion's chief end, that we might grow up into the fullness of the stature of Jesus. It's maturity. It's being grown up into this. And so in our responses, we are to seek Christian maturity, he's saying. Jesus does not, again, expect perfection of followers. He doesn't expect you to be morally perfect to do this. But in this life, we must seek to grow up into the perfect righteousness and perfect love of God. 
This is not to be faultless, but rather to be tethered to Christ in his righteousness, in our every response. And that's what conversion's talking about. So, I'm going to, this is a helpful illustration for me. Maybe it'll be a helpful illustration for you. Don't worry, I know we're talking about enemies and I'm getting a sharp stick out. No worries here. But uh, on a whim this year, uh, we decided to plant a few vegetable plants, just on a whim again. Uh, and I grew up doing this. I grew up with my grandparents who had, had gardens and that kind of thing. But uh, this is the first time we had done anything like this on our own. And we planted these little seedlings, okay? And they're no more than like two or three inches tall, you know, real, real small thing. And I kept reading that for these particular plants that we had, that they required a stake, okay, or a trellis. And the best time to put those in place was actually when they were still seedlings, when they were still really, really immature. Because you had the, you had the least likelihood of um, damaging the, the roots, Okay, so it seemed really, really silly at first because for a, several weeks or a couple days, you know, I had, we had this four foot uh, stake in the ground and this little tiny, you know, seedling right next to it. You know, we had more, more sticks in, in, out there than anything else, right? But what we found is that after a couple of days, that seedling would grow a little bit taller and in order for it to have support and stability to bear fruit and further growth, you'd have to tie it to that stake. And then you come back a couple of days later and you'd grow up a little bit more. You'd have to tie it down. And maybe this is more having to do with my novice at best ability in this, but by the end of things, you had knots and everything tied all the way up in the plant was the height of the stake itself. It had grown up into the thing that had supported it most. And I think this is what Jesus is teaching us in this passage, that as we mature and we begin to bear fruit in our life, the more growth that's there, the more we must tie ourselves and tether ourselves to the righteousness of Jesus. And every time we do this, every time that righteousness might tower over you. But every time you tether yourself to a righteousness that is not your own in your response is another opportunity for growth and fruitfulness in your life. And so the Christian life is just a continual exercise of that from immaturity until we all grow up into the fullness and stature of the measure of Jesus Christ. And so every time you tether yourself to Jesus, every opportunity you have to respond in a way that is outside of yourself but conforms to Jesus is an opportunity for you to grow in faithfulness and fruitfulness in the righteousness and the love of God. And so our perfection then, friends, is Christ's perfection at work in us on our behalf so that so we must tether our every response to him as we go through life so that we might grow up into this and we find ourselves growing parallel. Our affections, our desires, our responses, our intuitions, our natural reflexes then begin to reflect him instead. And the grace that saves us now begins to master us. 
So in conclusion, I'm going to give you really four really practical markers of a maturing love at work in our life. And the first one is this. A maturing love resists retaliation and instead prefers mercy. This is what Jesus is getting at. From the mercy we have received, we then instead of having that natural default to retaliation and vindictiveness. Instead, maturing love prefers mercy. Self-vindicating impulses are changed to the impulse of mercy and a desire to see someone's life reconciled to Jesus. That's the first one. The second one is a maturing love doesn't wait until it feels like loving to act. That's a hard one, right? But you must you and I must discipline our desires so that they will mature. As long as we wait for our desires to come, we will never grow up in Christ. Remember, it is the tethering our lives to Jesus that grows us up. The disciplining of our desires so that they may mature. Maturing love does not wait until it feels like loving to act. Third, maturing love prays and watches love go from bud to blossom. As one commentator by the name of Warren Wiersbe says, prayer takes the poison out of our attitudes. When we pray for our enemies, we find it easier to love them. And so I wanna challenge you that maybe that next time you see that person come down your social media feed or that headline with that particular name that just kind of irks you, right? Or maybe that person that you think of in your mind or, or, or you pass every day that is, you would consider maybe just someone that's an enemy. Will you begin to pray for that person and watch your response then change? And then the fourth marker of maturing love tethers all of love to a higher love because again, we are growing up into a love that is not our own. God is not calling us to muster up something in us, but rather that the divine dignifying love of God that has dignified us and saved us would then work itself out in our lives as we tether ourselves to his lordship in our every life. And so conversion then produces a dignifying love towards all people out of a tethered trust in Jesus and his extraordinary love. So are you living in Jesus' righteousness or your own?